Well, welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible class uh, with the Stuart Church of Christ. You can see our, at least my picture is a little bit different this week. That's because Rich and I are at different locations and having to record this uh, from a distance of, so, what, four hours or so? Yeah. Something like that. So, okay. So, but we're glad you joined us. Uh, tonight is in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, we're continuing our chronological study at this time uh, for the Stuart Church of Christ. And let me just kind of review what we're doing and, and where we are in the text. The chronological study is a study in which we can keep the entire Bible in its, uh, in its chronological order. And the reason we do so is because uh, and the Bible's not organized that way, but the reason we do so is because it allows us to better keep the, uh, the accounts where they belong in a timeline, and that helps us to know more what was happening at the time and with Israel and, uh, and what God was doing, and we better understand the accounts when we do it this way. So, so that's kind of what we've done, and uh, we're in Exodus chapter 17. At this point, Israel or the descendants of Abraham, they're not yet uh, a nation. God will do that at uh, Mount Sinai, but this uh, group of people, the descendants of Abraham, have been freed from Egyptian bondage. Uh, Moses has led them out, and Aaron has been his spokesperson, and uh, immediately upon their departure from Egypt, they, or very quickly, they end up at the Red Sea, and that's where Pharaoh and his army believe that, uh, you know, this is an easy opportunity to bring his slaves back. He's become hard-hearted again, and so, uh, he pursues them and he traps them at the sea. And that's where God uh, intervenes and gets between uh, Israel and the Egyptians. And at that point, uh, God parts the sea and Israel crosses on dry ground. And then when Egypt pursues, God brings in the water and destroys the Egyptian army. Now in our last two classes, we've been, on, we've been after the crossing of the sea and we've seen this song of Moses, as it were, in which Israel rejoiced uh, at this victory that God has given, but it was not because their enemies had fallen. It was because God's enemies had fallen. Those who had, uh, had sought to outdo or challenge God had fallen. And then in chapter 16, immediately after they have uh, uh, left the Red Sea, they get thirsty. They get to a place where they're just a few days out and they're thirsty and they don't have water. Well, they have water, but it's a uh, bitter water. And so they, they, complain and whine at Moses and at God, and, and God has Moses throw this tree into the water, and it becomes drinkable. Well, immediately after that, if you were with us last week, they're out in the wilderness now, and they are, they're headed for Sinai, and uh, well, they've evidently consumed everything that they brought with them out of Egypt, which primarily would have consisted of unleavened bread, uh, but they're out of it now, and so they're complaining, and God, through Moses, intervenes again, uh, and this time he brings quail in the evening and he starts uh, what will happen for the next 40 years of bringing what was called manna, which meant what, because they didn't know what it was or what to call it. So it's called manna. And it was uh, this kind of honey-like tasting wafer or something like that that was on the ground in the mornings when the dew would dry up. And that would happen every day for that 40 years, except for the Sabbath day. Uh, and they couldn't gather up on any day of the week, more than one day's worth, or it would rot overnight, except for the sixth day in which they could gather up two days portion, and it would, uh, by God's protection, uh, keep overnight, and they would have it on the Sabbath because he wouldn't provide 
bread on the Sabbath. Now, also at the end of our account last week, God gave instructions on what was about to happen. When they get to Sinai, God was going to instruct them not only on the law, but on how to build this tabernacle and how to build uh, the altar and the, you know, the wash basins and the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And all of that was going to happen. And God was telling them that he wanted them to gather up some of this manna in a jar and they would keep it in this Ark of the Covenant. Uh, for as long as they would have this ark. And that's significant because, you know, the bread wouldn't keep overnight, uh, except for on the sixth night, and it certainly wouldn't keep two nights. So God was going to preserve, preserve this uh, fully from that point forward, at least what they put in the ark. Uh, so as we get into chapter 17 now, we're going to see two uh, further challenges or hurdles that Israel found themselves facing. And as a result of that, God's going to answer and deliver them again. But they're just continuing to struggle in their faith. I have no doubt that they're growing, but the hurdles are getting bigger. Uh, and as they get bigger, they do, they do struggle. You want to add anything before I go on? I think you covered most of it, but I think it's important to note right now, before we get into it, that these two hurdles that the Israelites or soon to be Israelites are about to face aren't punishments from God. As far as we know, they are continuing to live by the laws that God has set before them. And that these are just struggles that, we similar to things we may face in our own lives that at times it may feel like punishment, but with the outside context, we can see that they're not being punished. Right. Right. Yeah. They, this certainly is not something that God did to them. That was just yeah. the hurdle that they're facing. Okay. Exodus chapter 17. And the lesson will be shorter tonight. We expect because there's not as much to cover. Exodus 17, beginning in verse one. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So right off the bat, all we're, we've done is we've gone from this place where God provided them with the manna. And obviously, as they continue to journey, every day that's out there, except the Sabbath. And as they journey now out a little further, they've left their original water source, and now they're out here without another water source. And so they're going to start complaining. No, exactly. Um, I think you covered all of that. Okay, verse 2. Therefore, that's a connecting word. This is going to tell us what's going to happen as a result of them being without water. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So you can see, I think what we're, we're seeing here is their frustration, their struggle, their stress level is higher. It's higher than it's been in the past. Uh, it seems like each uh, part of this journey has has caused them a little more of a concern and i suppose it is the case that it's because they're just like us you know we want things to happen very quickly and we want them to be very smooth and so they have this dream in their mind that they've been holding on to for generations about escaping to freedom and you know in their mind they just see this victorious journey out of egypt and this march into canaan and you know it just hasn't happened that way there's been challenges along the way that they did not expect. And so as they have complained, now it's at, at this place where he, it's not even called a 
complaining so much as it is murmuring. Now, they contend and they murmur. So they're, they're challenging Moses. It's almost like they're arguing with him. They're debating with him. And then the murmuring carries further as they're going out and talking to other people about it. Uh, so this is spreading the discontent and the problems among the nation. And, uh, and it gets so bad that when Moses turns to God for answers, because he doesn't understand what's going to happen here either. So when he turns to God for answers, he points out the fact that the people are actually ready to stone him. And isn't that the way it goes when you lead? You know, you're out there in a position where Moses is trying to do everything he can do to lead the people to follow God and to lead the people in God's blessing. And, you know, when it doesn't go the way that they want, they can't attack God. They can't see him, but Moses is right there. And so they can contend with Moses, and they do. It's got to be incredibly frustrating for him. Yeah, um, one of the first things that jumps out at me is the trinity of things that they're concerned about. They're concerned about themselves, their children, and their cattle. I just love the idea that these people have like three things that really are important to them, and it's those three in that order. But getting yeah. on with the more serious stuff is that I find it, um, I guess, inspiring that Moses could take on this role where he was out of, this was outside of his control as well. Moses himself was probably really thirsty. He too was worried, and yet he knew that it wasn't his fault. So when they contend with him, he knows that they're not actually completely upset with him, that they're also upset with God, because Moses points it around back at them and asks, why, why are you doing this to God? And I find and, that... And go ahead. No, go right ahead. And clearly, there's nothing Moses by himself can do about it. Right. <laughs> Moses knows that this is completely outside of his control. If Moses could have brought water with them, I'm sure he would have chosen to do so. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Okay, uh, let's see. Verse uh, 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And I find it interesting there, and it may be significant the word I should use, uh, there that when God tells Moses to go and do this, he tells him to take elders of the nation as well. Now, obviously, that word means literally older. And so what we're dealing with here is some of the people that would have been leaders in their own tribes, what will become tribes, uh, people that would have been highly respected uh, because of their age. They have a certain level of wisdom. And so they're people that other people in the nation would look up to. And I think it's significant because not only, I mean, they're not going to do anything. They're just going to observe and be before the people. But I think it's, it's significant because what it tells the people is that this is not about Moses. You know, he needs leaders to trust God and to trust Moses' leadership so that the people who are connected to their elders, you know, they know Moses because he showed up. They don't know him like they know the people that spent their whole life in bondage with them. So they need these people involved. And so God says, what I want you to do is get the elders of the people to stand up with you before everybody and everybody can see and these elders can witness and they can testify to anybody who can't see it, by the way, in a crowd of 600,000 plus men. And so he challenges them 
and he says, strike this rock. Now, later on, that'll change in another account. But in this account, God says, strike this rock, and I'll pro I will provide you water. I love the fact that God here reminds Moses to take that rod, the one that you struck the river, because I can imagine all of Moses' doubt just disappearing the second he picks that rod up again, because that rod is a symbol of God's ability to pro provide for his people. And you see here, like you said earlier, um, I'd call it God playing politics, that he knows that if you get the right people surrounding Moses when this happens, that the word would spread, that God will provide through Moses, and that God continues to use Moses to lead them on this journey. Yeah, and emphasizing that rod, uh, just as you said there, that was the beginning. Yeah. That was the beginning before the people when he struck that river and it turned into blood. And yeah, that was the beginning. And it's still there to deliver them or to God to use it. Insignificant as it was, it's just a stick <laughs> that he used to protect his sheep out in the wilderness. And yet and God still using it. Okay, verse seven. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. Now, those two words do mean contention and temptation. So Moses has named these places, uh, you know, contention and temptation. And the, the reason is they need to remember. And, you know, that's an important thing even today. We have, uh, maybe we don't study it like it used to be the case, but towns are named based on their history. Cities are named based on their history, whether it's something significant that was in that area or some significant person that was a part of the founding of a city or the history of that city, some great leader from the past. And, and we don't pick negative ones, right? You know, you don't pick, uh, I remember Arkansas, when we lived in Arkansas, it was really big about naming, uh, uh, you know, towns by some landmark, like for example, the town of Marked Tree uh, was named that because, you know, back when, before there was a town there, when somebody was trying to give directions, they'd say, you know, go by that, that marked tree down there and turn. And that became the name of the city. But nobody ever named a city, as far as I could tell, by anything detrimental or <laughs> negative, right? Uh, you know, nobody ever named a settlement Dry Field, you know, Dry Field, Missouri, or something like that. It was always something positive, but not here. And the reason is, is because as they're looking back from this place forward, this is even before, you know, all the delivery, this is, this is all of before they move on. Uh, God delivers water, and then he says, now, don't forget, every time you think of this place, you're going to think of the fact that you questioned me, you challenged me, and guess what? I delivered again. I am a big believer in physical reminders of either spiritual or things that aren't physical in themselves, and I'm, I love posters with inspirational quotes on them. I know it's cheesy. I love signs on the <laughs> walls, and I love sticky notes. If you ever walk into my office, there's like 30 sticky notes all over the desk, but those are reminders to me of things that I would otherwise let slip away or let slip into the back of my memory. And you see Moses and God here doing the same exact thing. Yeah, they weren't going to forget, were they? No. Okay, verse uh, 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Now, before we read actually what happened, I think it's obvious here that this is a message that's come from God uh, because this plan that he's going to enact here has absolutely no 
humankind wisdom in it whatsoever. Okay. The only thing in it that could be considered any of man's wisdom would be choose men to go to war. Right. Uh, and, and even that is not significant enough for it to count. Uh, as you'll see in just a few minutes. This is all about God's wisdom. This is a battle very much like what's going to happen at Jericho some 40 years after this account with the next generation. Uh, but here's the second hurdle come along, and here's the Amalekites, and they're, they're kind of nomads in this area. And you would expect, since Israel went out here, and there was no water, right? So the Amalekites are nomads in this area, and they also have to struggle with things like water. And uh, they don't have God having delivered them water. So now all of a sudden here Israel is with this newly created oasis, if you will. And the Amalekites want that. They want God's blessing. Uh, and here's the thing. There's a principle found all throughout the Bible. When God provides you with a blessing, you don't waste it. You don't waste it. You don't give it away. You don't disrespect it. You honor it. You protect it. You're a good steward of it. And so Moses says, Whatever God's told him, you go out, choose your man, Joshua, and you go out and you, uh, you fight this battle. And I'll tell you the plan. And he will in just a minute. Go ahead. I, I just hope that they remember that God just used Moses to deliver water just a few verses ago. Because as Moses continues to give this speech, I can imagine them to start doubting in him again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a great, great <laughs> plan, right? Yeah. And there are several accounts. I mean, the account of Gideon's battle is like this, plus yeah. the account of Jericho and others. Okay, uh, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, I want you to think just a second. Is there any possible way that you can twist this around to be natural and say, you know, Moses is holding this rod of God up above his head. And when he does that, that just really motivates Israel and they fight really hard. And when they see him getting tired and the rod goes down, they get discouraged. Can you, can you possibly claim that? There's just no way, right? I mean, this is clearly an account where as long as Mo what God has said to Moses evidently is you go up on the hill and you hold that above your head, and you keep it there. And as long as you keep it there, I'll be with you. And he's up there sacrificing his strength and his ability for the people in the valley by fighting. And as long as he's holding that up, like God told him to, they're winning the battle. Of course, if you've ever held anything over your head, even just your hands, you don't have to have any weight at all. If you do it for very long, it gets tiring, right? How long does a battle take? So you've got to imagine this guy's getting pretty tired, right? But, but he's, got, he's going to do what God says, and when he does that, that's when the people are blessed. Go ahead. No, I think um, what you said is exactly correct. One of the parallels I see here is to the idea of prayer, that as long as you're continuing to pray and you continue to have faith and you're continuing to do that, God is going to continue to work with you and work for you. But when you don't, obviously God is not going to be able to help you. And I see this here, especially since like the traditional Jewish way of praying is with your hands over your head. I see like a very strong parallel to prayer in this passage. And, and you know, if you, if you take that and, and move on with it, you have to recognize that uh, it's just about the fact that we actually have, we have an all powerful God and we have the power to limit his blessings. 
Yeah. <laughs> By just not doing what he tells us to do. Exactly. Crazy, it? It's okay. wild. All right, verse uh, 12. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And I love that. I love that not just because of the account where they, you know, they help him hold his hands up so that the people win by God's power. I love it more because I think that it explains. I think it's a picture of what we're told by Paul in Galatians chapter six about bearing with one another's burdens and, you know, lifting each other up and holding up weak hands. And I mean, Moses is trying everything he can do to, to, to do what God asked him to do. And there are times you just can't carry the burden, not by yourself. And so these two men are standing there with him and they give him a place to sit and they hold his hands up with him and for him uh, and help Israel in this battle that God delivers them from. It's an amazing account. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly that. I, I believe Paul had this imagery in mind when he wrote those verses. I, I firmly believe that. Um, I find it just inspirational in the way that it just shows that sometimes what seems like the simplest tasks, especially for us when we're trying to follow God, eventually can be very difficult, they can be defeating, but it's always doable because God will provide a way and often the way that God provides is through other faithful followers. Yeah, our family, our spiritual family. Yeah. Okay, verse uh, 14. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now we stop there and I find a couple of interesting things only because I know of what's coming in the future. Uh, at this point, I don't think any of them know what's going to happen. Uh, God says, once this battle is over, now write it down. Write it down, and I want Joshua to watch you write it down. And there's no explanation given as to why, <laughs> except for the fact that God's going to, you know, eliminate these people in the future. Well, we know. We know why Joshua needs to be involved here, because 40 years from now, Joshua is going to be the one to lead them into battle after Moses has died. And so Joshua needs to be just as much of a leader as Moses is to really truly trust that God will, you know, next time. Okay, Joshua, march around the city once a day. Be quiet though. March around the city once a day and then go back to camp. And you know, on the seventh day, march around it seven times and then just holler and the walls will fall down. Oh, but don't take anything. Leave the first fruits all to God from this first city. And Joshua's gonna have to have, to have the faith and courage to get Israel to the place where they can do that. And he, he learns that leadership from Moses. Leadership is passed down. You know, you don't just magically wake up one day and become a leader. You learn leadership. And that's what Moses is doing here. And he's recording this by God's command so that the Joshua, and by the way, this is not even going to happen in Moses' lifetime, not this defeat of the Amalekites. And it's not going to happen in Joshua's lifetime. It's not going to happen until David is the king. So we're talking about a long time in the future. I mean, I think you covered all of it. I just find um, the places where God instructs Moses to specifically write things down, I find them super interesting. They're just like a little um, project of mine to like keep and look at that, this idea that this is something that God wanted them to know was important, but God also wanted us to know that he wanted them to know it. 
that helps answer a curious mind, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, verse 15. And if you're reading from the King James Version, I think this reads a significantly different only in the word that's used. Uh, Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. I, I may be mistaken, but I think the, uh, the King James says Jehovah Nisa there is actually the word but i like the new king james because i know what it means the lord is my banner for he said because the lord has sworn the lord will have war with amalek from generation to generation and you wonder what this banner is well a banner is like a flag and so what it is is this is a symbol you you hear in the song of solomon as the shulamith is talking about her husband and she says his banner over me is love and her point is he is her provider he is her protector, he is her leader, and she will follow him. And so here, as Moses calls this place, the Lord is my banner, what he's saying is now we have this, this, this symbol. Uh, obviously, it's a symbolic thing here. They don't literally carry this. Uh, but the Lord is my banner means God's going to get us to this place, and he's going to do it no matter how much time it takes or how far into the future it is. God's going to get us there, and he's going to deliver us and provide for us just like, by the way, they've got, they're getting a whole stack of things in their past now of hurdles that God got them over. Go ahead. No, I think, I think you covered it exactly, this idea that this is going to physically represent God's power and what he's going to do for them, as well as what he has already done for them. Yeah, they're getting a lot of those reminders, aren't they? <laughs> they sure reminders. are. So, okay, well, that's all we're covering tonight. Uh, we will... Uh, we will pick up next Wednesday night in Exodus chapter 18. Uh, we are glad that you joined us tonight, and, uh, and we, we hope you'll join us again next Wednesday night as well. Rich, if you'll close us with a prayer. All right. Dear Lord, our Father, we are so thankful for the blessings you have given us in our life. We're so thankful for this gift of technology where, although we are separated in this time, we can continue to read your word and study your word, Lord. We're so thankful for the gift of your word, the Bible our ability to understand it and use it to become better servants for you, Lord. We ask that as we study it, you continue to be with us, that you continue to bless us so that we can continue to bring people closer to you. We ask all of this in your son's holy name. Amen.